Okay, we are in the book of Esther this morning, starting in chapter 9, and we'll be starting in verse 26. So let's open with prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this book that we've been studying, um, for how it shows the way you work uh, in the background in our lives, how your plan is accomplished no matter what we see or are doing. Um, we can know that you're at work and that your plan will indeed uh, be accomplished according to your will. Lord, we thank you that we can trust in you to do that, especially in our own lives. Father, pray that you'll bless our time now to, as we study your word. Help us to see it, hear it, and, uh, and see how it all fits together with the rest of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to read. We're going to start in chapter 9, verse 20, and read through the end of the book. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Hyrus, both near and far. You have to celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. As a time when the Jews got relieved from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration, he wrote them to observe the days, days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days so Queen Esther, daughter of Abel, along with Mordecai the Jew, <coughs> wrote the full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance. That these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The commander of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. 
10, 10 one, Eva. Oh. Oh, are we going to do 10? Yeah, yeah, we'll do 10 also. Oh, okay. All Sorry about that. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. How far we one? In the book. You can read verse 2. I just did how far we were going. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king hath promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen, the one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. And you an optimistic the whole chapter and a half today. Yeah, <laughs> we'll cover a whole chapter. So last two weeks ago, in the early part of chapter nine, uh, the Jews it, it came to the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, and the Jews were able to go. They attacked and killed their enemies, and we saw that in the city of Susa, uh, they killed five hundred, um, and then. The king went to Esther and said, okay, well, we've, you know, you were able to kill 500 enemies. What, what more do you want? And so they asked for two things. One was that the 10 sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, be hanged. And secondly, that in the city of Susa, that they would have another day of it to attack their enemies. And so the king granted that. Um, and they killed an additional 300 enemies. So there was a total of 800 that were killed in Susa. And then we found out across the entire kingdom, there were 75,000 enemies had been killed. And so this was really a point of, uh, you know, the Jews had been persecuted, and this wiped out the persecution. Um, and it was uh, kind of a long, uh, bloody day, I guess, but, uh, but they were able to wipe out their enemies. And so, out in the rural areas, you know, on the 14th day of the month, they celebrated. Their enemies were gone. They were free from their enemies. They were free from the persecution. Within Susa, since they had uh, fought for two days, they celebrated on the 15th. And so now we've got uh, this celebration on the 14th in rural areas, the 15th in Susa, and Mordecai had sent out letters declaring that this is to be an annual celebration. So this morning we're starting verse 26, and we're, it's basically continuing to explain why the Jews sell Purim, or celebrate Purim. So 26 through 28, Therefore they called these days Purim after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all who allied themselves with them so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. So these verses really uh, confirm that the, the Jews fully accepted this celebration. Uh, you know, it wasn't just, uh, you know, 
his letter back in verses 20 and 21 set it up as a, um, asked them to celebrate it. And here we see that they, they fully uh, uh, took it on and it became part of the Jewish culture. It wasn't just a Persian law. So Mordecai sent out his letters establishing it as a Persian holiday, but they accepted it as a Jewish holiday within their, their people. In Jerusalem and Israel are part of the 127 provinces? Uh, well, Jer Jerusalem was in a province called Judea. But it was a part of one of the 127? Yes, I think it was one of the 127, right. I've, I've assumed it was, but I thought... Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. not sure I've ever heard that. So. Right, it doesn't mention Judea or Jerusalem in this yeah, book. Yeah, it just said 127 provinces, and I was right. always assuming it was part of it. But it is, yeah. Anyway, so, okay. Yeah. Israel, that word technically referred to the northern kingdom, and it had disappeared centuries earlier okay. yeah, when the Assyrians conquered it. So we see the Jews celebrating it. It talks about the proselytes, those who allied themselves with the Jews, they celebrated it. Uh, and so it was, uh, it's going to be an everlasting festival for them. Um, it says these days should never cease to be celebrated, it says nor their memory ever die. And what's different is this is not one of the Mosaic festivals. This is established separately from that. And yet it has, it carries basically the same weight. Uh, I thought, let's, let's look at one of the uh, mosaic festivals. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. Someone would like to read verse 17 for us there. Exodus 12, 17. Celebrate the festival of love and bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations of <coughs> Okay, so we see some similar language. Celebrate this as a lasting ordinance for all throughout all your generations. We see some of the same language here uh, in Esther. Um, so why do they have these celebrations? <coughs> Let's turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Someone would like to read excuse me, verses 5 through 7. <coughs> Okay, so these festivals were given as a teaching aid so that the parents could teach their children about God's faithfulness to his people. You know, there's, it helps to have a holiday where you can explain it to your kids what's going on. <coughs> Sometimes it's easy to become neglectful of trying to train your kids on all this, you know, having you know, weekly Bible studies or nightly or whatever. But when a holiday comes along, it's like, what, well, what are we doing this for? When the Feast of Purim would come along, well, you'd explain the history. 
what actually happened. Talk about Haman and his plan to wipe out, exterminate the Jews and how God protected them and allowed them instead to, to uh, get rid of their enemies. So like verse 8 there in, in the song, that they would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn, rebellious generation, right. whose hearts were not loved to God, whose spirits were not faithful to you. Right. So right. we're going to celebrate, so you remember why we aren't going to do Yeah, right. We're going to turn out like those people. Yeah, it's, it's a teaching aid, is to help, help the people remember God's faithfulness. <coughs> okay, and let's go... <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Going on back into Exeter chapter 9, uh, finishing up chapter 9, starting in verse 29. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews, to 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely, words of peace and truth, to establish these days Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. And the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. <coughs> so this is another official proclamation. Back in verses 20 and 21, Mordecai had sent out a letter telling the people to celebrate. So now we've got another proclamation going out. <coughs> and this one includes um, the queen. Um, uh, <coughs> giving her authority also to this letter. So we see her, her full title, Queen Esther, and it gives her Jewish background, daughter of Abihail. So we see the two things, her authority as queen, and also the fact that her patronage for the Jews. So we see the two of them together here. She's watching out for the Jews, and she has authority. Um, Mordecai is also called the Jew. So... You know, it emphasizes again, they're both Jewish, and they are possibly the second and third most powerful people in the kingdom. So God has given them uh, protection in that kingdom because of the Queen Esther and, and Mordecai. <coughs> now, back in those days, they did not have separation of church and state. <laughs> So we see, you know, it wasn't uncommon for uh, kings to issue uh, decrees regarding religion. And I want to look at a couple of them from the book of Daniel. So look at Daniel chapter 3. And both of these occur after essentially miracles that happen. Daniel chapter 3, some like to read verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue them this way. 
Okay, so this is after the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was quite impressed by God protecting these three uh, believers in the furnace. And so he issues this decree, prohibiting any blasphemy against Jehovah. Now, he doesn't say anything about all the other religions. They can just go on as they were, but whatever, you know, this is a, a prohibit, uh, prohibition against blaspheming against Jehovah God. Pretty severe penalty here. You'll get your body torn apart and your house torn down. So, um, Going on to Daniel chapter 6. Someone like to read verses 25 through 28 here. When King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth, may your May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and, and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. It, he rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Okay, so here we have um, Daniel being rescued from the lion's den, and so King Darius issues this decree, uh, you know, basically requiring people to respect the God of Daniel and to respect Jehovah. So it wasn't uncommon for kings and royal officials to issue religious decrees, and so. Here we have Mordecai issuing this decree, Mordecai and Esther together. And again, it says it's, it's got sent out to all 127 provinces, and it establishes the days of Purim. And it is interesting here because uh, in verse 31, it uses the word establish three times. Um, to establish these days at their appointed times, uh, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established them. So that refers back to the, the first letter. And also as the Jews had established them. So the Jews, so you, so you got an official decree establishing this ceremony. The Jews had picked it up and they had established it within them, their own culture. And so now we have a second letter being issued from Mordecai and, and uh, Esther establishing it again. Um, so this almost seems like overkill. <laughs> most, most of the second half of chapter 9 just has to do with, okay, here's the Feast of Purim. It's been established. <laughs> it's been decreed several times. The Jews have accepted it. This is why we celebrate this, this feast. Um, and again, it's coming up. What is it? Tomorrow, I think, March 6th, if I remember right. I, I did look it up, so it would make it tomorrow then uh, that they'd be celebrating it. So they're still celebrating it. So apparently it's stuck. Now, how many times does God has to, t to tell us something before it sticks? <laughs> Lots of times. And this is an example of that. Um, now, one thing that's a little bit different here at the end of verse 31, it mentions times of fasting and their lamentations. So there's lamentations here. 
Um, so, and fasting. What, what did we have before? We just had feasting, not fasting. We had feasting and celebration. So it adds, the Jews have added that now uh, to the Feast of Lamentations, or to the Feast of Purim. And that was to remind them of the despair they felt after Haman's first decree went out. I mean, it was like the whole bottom had fallen out of the world. And then God rescued them. We saw a little bit of that back in, in chapter 9, verse 22. It says, uh, It was a month that was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. So they will remember both the sorrow and the gladness. And finally, the chapter ends by saying, All this was written down in the royal records. So the Jews were especially good, or excuse me, the uh, Persians were good at keeping records, royal records. Okay, going on to chapter 10. So this really ends the action of the, and the main story of the book. So 10 is, chapter 10 is kind of a postscript. It tells us, well, what happened to these people? Sometimes you'll see a movie that's based on historical events, and at the end of the movie, then they'll have a, a screen will scroll up, and it tells what happened, you know, what happened to this guy in, in real life? And what, where did this guy go? So, so that's kind of the postscript here. Um, it doesn't mention Esther, but it, it does have the King Ahasuerus and uh, Mordecai. So looking at the first two verses, King, now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and his full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia, or Medea? So it begins with Ahasuerus, it says he levied, levied tribute throughout the entire empire, even to the most distant coastlands. This is only possible if you have control. If you've got kingdoms and provinces that are rebellion, rebelling, they don't pay tribute. So this indicates something of the fact that he has consolidated control over the whole empire. Uh, they don't have rebellions going on. So you've got a period really of uh, central peace and control. You know, there's not fighting going on within the you know civil wars and, and rebellions. So. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, the, I think there's a term of, called Pax Romanus, which is the peace of Rome. During the Roman Empire, there was a peace across the earth. That's because the Romans basically crushed any rebellion that popped its little head up. They were very strong about crushing that. Um, but King Ahasuerus had peace. He was able to tax everybody. Everybody paid their taxes. Nobody rebelled. Um, and it goes on to mention his authority and his strength. Um, and again, we have the uh, idea of a prosperous, stable empire going on here. Historically, um, if you've ever heard of the city of Persepolis, he, he built Persepolis during this time as a second uh, capital city. 
and it, was, it became even greater and stronger and richer than Susa was. So. Who followed Xerxes? Xerxes, Artaxerxes. Who followed Cyrus? When did Cyrus, Cy Cyrus come in? Cyrus was the, um, <clears throat> back at the beginning of Ezra. Yeah, that's after, <coughs> that's after Esther. No, that was before. Cyrus was... Cyrus was the king of Persia when they conquered Babylon. Way back at, yeah, way back at the very beginning. So is the first Darius that's mentioned was not king over the entire, he, he was Darius the Mede. So he was like a governor who conquered Babylon under the reign of Cyrus. <clears throat> and then he was followed by Cambyses, I think, and then, and then Darius who was the king of, uh, or the, of the empire. And that's when they rebuilt the temple. Yeah, I, I have trouble keeping these guys straight, too. Well, they can reverse numbers. You know, the numbers don't go up, they go down. Like, yeah, the dates go down. Yeah, yeah. It's like, this is really confusing. Yeah, the dates, are, the dates go down. So. Um, so anyways, we, we have Hazra's, you know, large, stable kingdom, which is good for the Jews, because he, you know, Mordecai was in uh, second command and so forth. But this goes on, and really, really the emphasis here uh, on these verses is Mordecai uh, refers to the, the full account of, of his blessing and how, how the king advanced him. Um, back in chapter 3, you know, we had looked at Haman, and, and the king just, Hazarus had advanced him and just put him in a position of great power. Well, he's gone, and now Mordecai is being put into that same position. He has a great deal of power and influence. Um, and he's really responsible for administering the government um, at this time. Um, now it does talk about, uh, end of verse 2, about all this being written in the book of the Chronicles. They have found lots of records from the Persian Empire. And I, as I mentioned before, they have found records that, with the names like Mordecai in them. So uh, it's kind of, you know, one of their gods was Marduk, and it's almost a takeoff from Mordecai. Is, it comes from Marduk. Um, and that's the other thing is uh, one of the other a goddess was Ishtar, and they think the name Esther, Esther might have come from that. So those were the, their, their Persian names. Um, there doesn't seem to be a record here, or, or this particular record is remaining, uh, but they were written down at the time. So looking at verse 3, it says, For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So this focuses on 
how Mordecai's greatness affected the Jewish people. And it makes it very clear here that he was the number two power in the, in the empire. He was second only to King Ahasuerus. Um, but he was also great among the Jews. Um, and it wasn't because he clawed his way to the top and made a bunch of enemies doing that. He had been um, promoted because of his competence and being and God's blessing and putting him in the right place at the right time. And we see God working in the background to put Mordecai in this position. So this is really similar to Joseph in Egypt, where Joseph was became second in command, and he blessed his people. Remember, he protected the Jews. Um, so it's a very similar story. God put one of his people in a position of extremely high power in order to protect the Jews. So we, we see here that um, he was a benefactor of his people. Uh, says he sought the good of his people. He spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So the Jews prospered during this time. Um, one of theirs was the second in command. One of theirs was the queen. And so they were blessed during uh, this reign of Ahasuerus. So now we get a little bit into history. Because the book ends here, technically. Um, what happened to Ahasuerus? Well, ten years after this, he was assassinated by the commander of his guard. <laughs> That's kind of like being assassinated by the Secret Service. Not uh, the same one that warned um, Esther earlier? Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> they were both hanged. Uh, so for at least ten years after this, you, you think, okay, the Jews were in a pretty good position. Ahasuerus, his, his queen was a Jew, his number one man was a Jew, and the Jews prospered. Um, but anyways, Ahasuerus uh, was uh, assassinated ten years after this book ends. And then Artaxerxes becomes the next king. And he, he rules for 40 years. And it's during this time that we see Ezra and Nehemiah. So seven years into Artaxerxes' rule, Ezra comes to Jerusalem to teach the Jews the law. Um, and so that's 17 years after the end of Esther. And then in... Ahasuerus in his 20th year, we have Nehemiah, who is his cupbearer. So again, we have a Jew in a very high position in this, uh, in this government. Um, and so he received permission to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So this then is 30 years after the end of the book of Esther. And again, it, it appears Nehemiah was a, f a favorite of the king. He was now the governor in Jerusalem because he was faithful to the king. The king needed someone in Jerusalem that he could count on because Egypt had rebelled uh, at that time. And so anyways, this brings us down to about 532 B.C. And that ends the written history of the Jews in the Old Testament. 
is uh, where uh, Nehemiah is the governor of Jerusalem. He's been governor for 12 years, and then that's where the biblical history cuts off. <coughs> now, Malachi may have been prophesying after Nehemiah, but otherwise that ends all the Old Testament records. We got a gap of about 400 years until Gabriel... 532 or 432? 432. So it ends the written history at 432? Approximately, yeah. Okay, I thought you said 532. I don't know. Yeah, no. It's 432. 432. Because Ezra is probably 458 <laughs> then we're in Ezra at that point. Yeah, some, something like that. Because Nehemiah's, Nehemiah begins about 444. I can remember that one because <laughs> it's a nice round number. So 432 B.C., We've got a gap there until um, Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple to announce the birth of John the Baptist. So, historically, what happens for the first hundred years after Nehemiah? There's not much written about it. It's just, it's assumed that the Jews were not being persecuted. The Persian Empire was going on in a normal fashion, so they probably were not... Um, being persecuted, no major disruptions of the religious practices. And then in 332 BC, Alexander the Great arrived in Palestine. And this ends the Persian rule of this area, of this, uh, this, this area, <clears throat> and it begins the, the Greek rule. Now Alexander typically was he was very tolerant of the, all the local religions. He supported them. He supported the governments as long as they were willing to submit to his authority and pay taxes to him. He would go to a, a city and say, okay, you've been submitting to the Persian king and paying taxes to him. If you, do, if you switch your allegiance and submit to me and pay me the taxes, then I'll let you live. And I may even give you some extra land. I may give you, you know, reward you for that. If you say no, then I'll just destroy you. And so he actually the conquered. The negotiations ended? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, con he conquered a large area of territory very swiftly without a lot of bloodshed that way. <clears throat> now, when he came into Palestine, he was coming down the coast. And so he came to the city of Tyre, which is north of Jerusalem. Tyre said no, so he set up his army and um, besieged Tyre, um, and that went on for about a year. Um, one of the things that happened at that time is, and this gets to a record from Josephus. He it's needed Tyre's the seaport. Yes, Tyre's the seaport. It's that little island right off the seaport. Um, he needed more bodies to help siege, and so he sent an emissary first to the Samaritans, who lived just north of Jerusalem, and said, you know, will you send us, you know, do you agree to submit to my authority and send me some troops? And they said, yes, we will do that. The emissary came to Jerusalem, and the ruler at that time was the high priest, and his name was Jadua, and he said, you know, I've got an agreement with Darius the second or third or whatever king of Persia that I will be 
faithful to him, and so I will not send you troops, which angered Alexander. So he finishes destroying Tyre. His next stop is Jerusalem. So what does he do? Um, he's coming along, and again, this is what Josephus records. Um, so he, Jedua, the, the high priest, goes and prays. God gives him a vision. Um, and in that vision, he says, You're, the priests are to put on their royal robes, open the gates up, and walk out to meet Alexander's army. All the other people are to wear white and to follow the priests. And so they do that. They go out. Alexander's army comes up the road. Alexander comes up to the beginning. He comes right up to the priest and kneels and worships the God of the priest, worships Jehovah. And, you know, no one's expecting that. And what Josephus explains is that before Alexander started his conquests, while he was still in Macedonia, he had had a vision. And in this vision, these priests had come to him, followed by a bunch of people clothed in white, and they had blessed his attacks on Persia and told him that he would be victorious. And so when he sees the priest coming out of Jerusalem, he says, I've seen this guy already. I know who he is. This is the God who blessed me and has given me victory. And so, you know, and so he was very receptive to, to the priest. He goes into Jerusalem. He offers up sacrifices of thanksgiving to, to God. And he treats the Jews with a great deal of favor. And then Jadua shows him the prophecies from Daniel where it identifies Greece coming and defeating Persia. Um, and we don't really have time to look at those right now, but that's in Daniel chapter 8. Um, it, talks, it shows a picture of a goat attacking a, a ram, and the, it mentions later that the goat is Greece and the ram is Medo-Persia. Um, and then briefly, uh, uh, after this, uh, Alexander goes down, he conquers... Uh, Egypt, and then he comes back north and he heads east. He goes all the way into India, conquers a huge area. Um, but 12 years after uh, being there in uh, Jerusalem, he, he dies. So his kingdom is split four ways. Uh, two of them are really, two parts are really most important. The, uh, uh, Egypt becomes, the, it's called the Ptolemaic kingdom. Spelled P T O L E M I C, Ptolemaic. Um, and then the, most of the rest of the kingdom becomes the Seleucid Empire. So the Ptolemies have control of Judah at this time, and they are favorable to the Jews, just like Alexander was. And this goes on for about 100 years. And during this time, uh, they invite the Jews to come down to Alexandria, and that's when the Septuagint is translated. The Old Testament is translated into Greek during the time of the Ptolemies. Um, at the end of this hundred years, the Seleucids, they attack south, 
They conquer Palestine. Um, they're the ones who, um, you know, one of their leaders is Antiochus Epiphanes, who basically pollutes the temple. The Maccabees revolt. And the Maccabees actually um, governed themselves for about 100 years until Rome shows up about 63 AD. And that then leads us into the New Testament. So that's kind of a little bit of the history in between. So, very brief history. <laughs> so. Brian, you want to close in prayer for us? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word and the history that you've provided that shows us that you protect your people and you make things happen to your will. Please be with Pastor Robert this next hour to come and may our ears and hearts be open to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.